Good morning, everybody. I know some of y'all are looking at me and wondering why I get to teach in shorts and a t-shirt. You're like, that, that's, there's got to be like a church bylaw against that or something. Um, well, uh, it's because as soon as I leave here, I'm going to go help in childcare. So if you're jealous that I get to wear shorts and a t-shirt to church on a Sunday morning and not feel bad about it, you can talk to Ryan and Cresha about how you too can get to wear shorts and a t-shirt to church once a month and not get looked at scandalously and even get one of these free spiffy t-shirts. And then when they change the design in, I don't know, a year or two as it tends to cycle through, you get another free t-shirt. And then you can wear your throwback t-shirts. Right, Ryan? Tell these lovely people how they can get free t-shirts. Thank you, Ryan, for your work this week. Did you spend all day yesterday undoing everything? Okay. Uh, He spent all day Saturday on ice, probably. Um, These guys busted it so hard. The youth, it's so excited to see the youth so involved. I wouldn't hear it all week, but to see that you guys were in it, it's like throwbacks to when I was in youth. And it's part of what I think made us the best youth group ever in terms of just our relationship. And I think it's going to do the same thing for you guys. So that's exciting. Um, all right. We got a lot of ground to cover. I know I say that every single week, but we do have a lot of work today too. So uh, Peter, by the way, is not here. Uh, he's not feeling well. His back is giving him some issues today. So keep him in your prayers. Um, and it's a shame because I'm going to start with like his favorite words. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're still in the study of 1 John. Don't worry. In my notes, by the way, I actually wrote in 1 John 3, 11 through 15 there, and then crossed it out and put Genesis. But I think Abby, when she prepared my notes, thought I just made a mistake and just deleted it for me. Um, We are going to start with the lesson of Cain and Abel. I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, and we're going to read through verse 8. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What an incredibly dark day in human history. Um, Literally the first two people ever born on this planet. And one of them kills the other. Uh, Adam and Eve's commission to fill the earth and subdue it. Two steps forward, one step back. Side note, what faith 
for Adam and Eve to have more kids later, seeing what happened with their first two children, trusting God's plan and following his agenda. That's a side note. It took four people on earth for tensions to rise to the point of murder. Think about that. And I don't like to speculate too much about Genesis, but I bet that tensions were close with Adam and Eve to begin with. We see enmity with them pretty quickly um, when they begin to sin against each other. Hatred and murder is baked into the sinful heart of man. This is not a Cain and Abel problem locally. It is a species-wide epidemic. Um, The wages of sin is death, right? And in one sense, that is an eternal and spiritual death. But in another, it is a very physical, very temporal death. And all too often, that physical death is at the hands of one another. So how did we get here? How did we get... From, I won't say good to bad. (laughs) It's kind of from bad to worse here. How do we go from the tension of Adam and Eve to the murder of Cain and Abel? What are the steps that got us here? Um, And I think it's clear as you look at the way that, that the story is told that the catalytic moment, the catalyst, the trigger for this murder are, are these sacrifices. That's what what God highlights in his word. Um, so let's look at these, at these sacrifices and let's figure out where this went so wrong fatally. Um, there have been a lot of interpretations of the stories of Cain and Abel and specifically um, interpretations of why Cain's sacrifice was rejected while Abel's was accepted. And we'll, we'll run through a few of these. Um, the first uh, that you'll hear sometimes is that Cain's offering was a grain offering and, um, and Abel's was a blood offering. And all of these have some merit to them. These aren't complete like goofballs coming up with these ideas. Um, we do know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's a reason why Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves, but God says, no, that's not enough. Let me take a skin from an animal. So there's some, some validity to that idea. The problem is we don't know that this is a sin offering. So we don't know that they're coming to atone for sins in this moment. We don't know that. Um, I've heard people say that it's because Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd, but that to me doesn't carry a whole lot of weight because yes, God is our shepherd, but God, like literally the first thing that God does is make a garden pretty much once he gets to shaping earth. Um, You know, one idea is that, is that this is just a case of God's providential election that God just chose Abel and not Cain. The offerings are fine, but that he just chose Abel and not Cain to prove a point. Um, I don't think that's the case here because we're going to see John point to a reason for the murder that gives an indication of the difference between Cain and Abel. So pause that thought. Um, I think the closest one to being 
on the mark is that Cain's offering was just the fruit of the ground, and Abel's was the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. I think we're dialing in on something here. Uh, if you've read the Mosaic Law, uh, you probably got like halfway through it in your Bible reading plan before you uh, moved on to like the Psalms. Uh, <laughs> You hear God talk a lot about the firstborn in offerings, and you hear him talk a lot about fat, the fat, the fat from the kidneys specifically, right? So he's very specific about the fat part of the offering. This is the rich part. This is the sustenance. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that this passage highlights that Abel brought the fat portions, But I think we need to drill deeper to the why behind that question and not just stop there. Um, Because why would Abel give the best part of his offering, the best part of his flock, and Cain not give the best part? That's where we start to get into the heart issue here. Because you got to remember that this offering isn't done in a vacuum. This isn't these guys just randomly show up and this is the first interaction they've had with God. Because, well, let's just put it this way. Uh, God doesn't just reject uh, Cain's offering. He rejects Cain and his offering. He accepts Abel and his offering. There is a bundling together of these things that shows that there is something beforehand that's carrying weight along with these offerings. This isn't God being arbitrary, and it's not necessarily even nitpicking over offering rules. What do we know about God and offerings and obedience? Look at Hosea 6.6 there. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In 1 Samuel, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. If Abel brings this perfect sacrifice and Cain and his life is, is distant from God, And Cain brings a weak sacrifice, but his life is holy and blameless before the Lord. Who does God accept? Right? I think if it's a sin atonement offering, maybe both. But what we see here is that God is is weighing, as, as Martin Luther says here, the faith of the individual was the weight which added value to Abel's offering. There is more here than just he gave better stuff. It is an ongoing walk with God versus an ongoing rebellion against God. Look, even if Abel's offering had been like the Wagyu beef of whatever flocks he raised, um, that would not exceed a consistent walk before God. And I think from that, we can gather that we're not catching God in some capricious moment where he arbitrarily disregards Cain's offering and accepts Abel's offering. I think Cain had a pattern of disregarding God long before God disregards Cain. So 
So how does Cain respond? The Bible tells us that his face, he was angry and his face fell. Maybe like the first documented case of depression in scripture. Uh, Cain is despondent. He is grieved. And he, this is before he's even killed his brother. This is a separation from God and feeling the weight of his sin moment. Um, and I think God's counsel to Cain is really interesting. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Um, God presents Cain with a crossroads here. He says, who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose good or evil? Are you going to choose me or sin? Uh, by the way, this is another argument against the idea that this is a, just about God being capricious and arbitrarily deciding. Because if this were just a story about God's sovereign choice, I don't think his first reaction would be giving Cain a choice to deal with. Um, this word, uh, will you not be accepted, uh, in the original Hebrew, the, the literal translation is, uh, if you do will, will there not be a lifting up? And he's talking about his face. He says, why is your face fallen? It, if you do well, won't it be lifted up again? And who's going to lift that face for him? It's going to be God. God is offering to accept him and to lift his countenance. He says, you don't need to be this way. You don't need to be despondent. You can still come to me. You still have a choice in the matter. He's got two masters vying for his heart. He's got the God of the universe, and he's got the personification of sin. God's desire, they both desire him. God desires to accept him. Sin desires to rule over him. God desires to relate with him. Sin desires to master him. How many of us can commiserate with Cain at this moment where we've sinned and we have a crossroads and we have to choose between turning to our God and turning inward to our sin? To whom do you turn when you sin? When you blow up at your kids, when you lie to make yourself sound impressive, when you waste time at work instead of being productive, when you stew in envy over that person on social media or across the sanctuary, when you indulge in gluttony or gossip or pornography, when you lose your temper in traffic, do you turn inward and wallow in self-condemnation? Or do you throw off all restraint and dive deeper into sin or do you turn to God? Do you run to your Savior who has called you to himself and who loves you? See, sin is real, guys, and the reality of sin demands that we have both a proper homardiology. That's a big word. It's the theology of sin, not the study of a guy named Marty. Um, and a proper theology, a study of God. We need both of those things to deal with the reality of sin. Because I want to I touch on some dangers that can lie in these areas. 
with regard to our homardiology, I want us to watch out for the danger of what's called Christian perfectionism. Um, this is the idea that Christians don't sin. By the way, just, just, we'll just do a, a, an unscientific poll here. How many of you have ever sinned since becoming a Christian? Okay. All right. So it's, sometimes theology is real easy. Um, without a proper understanding of the reality of living in a broken body, in a messed up world with a vicious foe, we can fall into this tendency to think that I shouldn't sin anymore. And then when we inevitably do, we can get real shell-shocked. We don't, we're not prepared for it. And there's this idea that, oh, well, I've already messed up. And we'll either dive into sin further or wallow in self-condemnation. Um, you can see both of those responses depending on a person's personality. Um, that's the danger of Christian perfectionism. It doesn't leave room in our worldview for our mistakes, for our sins. Um, the other danger I want to warn us against is underestimating God's holiness. I didn't put this in your notes, by the way, this next thing I'm going to say, because I wanted you to write it down so you'd actually remember it. If you remember a single thing that I say today, remember this. We fall into self-condemnation when we underestimate God's holiness. I'm going to say that again. We fall into self-condemnation when we underestimate God's holiness. When we fail to account for the fact that his holiness extends to his love. So just as God's holiness, his, his other thanness, right? That's how he's, he's different from us. Just as it permeates every single facet of his being, his purity, his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, his beauty, his power, it also permeates his love. The love of God is wholly different from yours and mine. Okay. Our love can be fickle and conditional and guarded and self-preserving. And God's love is faithful. It is unconditional. It is abundant. It is lavishing. It is self-sacrificial. We can have this idea where we put God's mercy in tension with his holiness. Um, there are these two things pulling theologically against each other. God's mercy is a facet of his holiness. It is imbued by his holiness. God doesn't forgive you even though he's holy. God forgives you exactly because he's holy, because he loves with a holy love that sacrifices himself to rescue you from your sin and absorb that penalty on himself. That's holy love. A less than holy love doesn't do that. We 
cheapen God's holiness when we don't apply it to his love and we think of it as a separate thing within him. God embodies a holy mercy that forgives us and saves us to the uttermost. And when we fail to grasp this, our sin drives us away from God in fear. We run from this distorted caricature of God that we've built in our minds. And we either end up wallowing in our own self-condemnation or we wallow in our sin. But either way, we wallow away from God because we've distorted what he actually is in his in his depths, in his character. See, when we understand God's holiness and his holy love, then our sin drives us in repentance to God and we lay our sin at his feet and we stand up forgiven. We repent, we go down and we rise up forgiven and we walk forward with him in holiness. We got a lot of parents here. Parents, you need, we need to raise our kids with a right understanding both of God's holiness and what he expects of us in terms of emulating that and also how his holiness imbues his forgiveness of us. Grandparents too. That was for you, Peter. Um, now, moving along, sadly, Cain does not heed God's counsel. He lets his bitterness fester he hates his brother because he does what is right and he chooses the sin that is crouching at his door and in his envy, he murders Abel. You see, in, in leaning away from God's offer of forgiveness, he leans into his sin of envy and his hatred of his brother, specifically, specifically of his brother's righteousness because that's the distinctual factor between the two of them. Abel is the most like visible reminder of his failings and he has to get rid of it. And so Abel's righteousness exacerbates his feelings of guilt. It deepens his resentment. At the end of the day, the difference between love and hatred is the difference between giving and taking life. See, Cain demands Abel's life as payment for his guilt. Jesus gave his life as payment for our guilt. This is the gospel, guys. Cain demands Abel's life as payment for his guilt. Christ gave his life as payment for our guilt. My kiddos, in this story, who are we? Cain. That's right, Emmett. Good job. Who is Jesus? Abel, thank you. We had a conversation about this last night. Different story, but good job applying the lesson. Proud of you guys. All right. We should probably talk about 1 John since we've got like 15 minutes left. Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. At the end of that lesson, we're moving to lesson 21 and a half. Thank you all for indulging me talking about Ken and Abel there. Now, I feel safe as we're turning there and saying that I don't think anybody here has murdered a sibling. Raise your hand if you have murdered a sibling. Okay, good. So this is pretty easy to apply, right? Um, 
If you've wanted to, well, we're about to get there. You're, don't get ahead of me in my notes. Um, did you read my notes? Um, none of us have murdered a sibling, or if you're out here and you have, then you have probably done your time and you have paid your penalty according to the state of Louisiana. Um, as we know, though, Jesus always dials up the demands of the law. We think that we like to think of him as dialing them down, but Jesus always turns it up to 11. So he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said of, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be, helble, hel- will be liable to the hell of fire. How many of you have ever been angry at your sibling or friend if you don't have siblings? How many of you have ever insulted your siblings? And how many of them specifically have said, you fool? (laughs) All right, so what are we going to do with this, guys? Um, So this passage, uh, John 3, 11 through 15. uh, Who has notes that I can borrow for a second? I'm sorry. Thank you. I'll give them back because you wrote on them. Uh, Oh, I didn't put your notes on here either. Okay, you can keep it. in John 3, 11 through 15, um, hold on, I'm poorly prepared and running out of time, oh no, uh, John is recapping the farewell discourse. Who knows what the farewell discourse is? That is in John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus, it's kind of like his last, last pep talk before he goes away uh, to his disciples. It's a big deal. Uh, it's, you know, what you tell your kids before you go on away on a date to leave them with the babysitters, right? Here's what I need you to do, guys. John's recapping that. Uh, let's read our passage here. John, first John three eleven through 15. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That, by the way, is a clue to what we're talking about interpreting that passage. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So in his farewell discourse, and then also here, we see two... Uh, ideas of how we can know true disciples based on relationships with others and interpersonal feelings. Uh, the first thing we see John, uh, Jesus say in his farewell discourse is in John thirteen thirty five. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So true believers love one another and the world can see that. Does that make sense? That's the first way, and we've covered that, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. This new idea that we see is that the world hates true believers. So true believers love one another, and the world hates true believers. And I'm going to read this whole little passage here, John 15, 18 through 20. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus here is actually even pointing back at the first clue. He's saying that if people hate them, it's a sign that those people are, not, are in the world. Meaning that people who don't hate them are showing themselves to be his true followers. So basically, two rules. Rule one, true believers love true believers. Rule two, see rule number one. Okay? Those are the two rules. But why does the world hate believers? Because they hated Jesus. Jesus says that very clearly. They hated me. They're going to hate you. If you're following me and you're like me and they hated me, like, don't be surprised. I like what he says, like, don't be surprised. He knows that one of them is going to be surprised. Uh, don't be surprised that they hate you. And, and because doers of evil hate doers of good. Uh, he even says that later in John 15, verse 24. He says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Like they hate Jesus and what he does, and they're going to hate you and what you do. And John highlights this in, in his uh, letter here. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why did he hate him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. <sighs> Guys, your obedient life is one way that God brings conviction to the unbelievers around you. He is a t- you are a tool being used to shape and draw the hearts of men to him. Does your life make unbelievers around you just a little uncomfortable? Um, now, I'm, I'm not talking about being like condescending and arrogant. I'm not talking about posting brash and caustic and abrasive memes on social media. Um, the gospel is offensive. It does not need your help being offensive. Okay? <laughs> um, you don't get to weasel out of this by saying, well, Jesus said the world would hate us. It's like, they don't hate you because of your righteousness. They hate you because you're a jerk. Um, <laughs> the high priest's servant wasn't mad at Peter because of his righteous works. He was mad at him because he cut his ear off. Okay? Don't be like Peter there. Don't be unnecessarily aggressive and caustic towards the world. What I mean is, do you live a life that is so glaringly different from the people around you that you force them to make the decision that God is calling on people to make both in John and in 1 John about whether they're going to gravitate towards you and your master or be repulsed by you and hate you? Do you force people to make that decision or do they not notice enough of a difference to have to do so? Do they make snarky comments about you or do they come to you and ask you what the secret sauce is? Do you joke differently than the guys at the water cooler or do you join in? Do you speak good things about your spouse in public or do you join in complaint sessions? Do you complain about your work or do you honor your employer? Do you gossip about others or speak only what is good, true, and necessary? Do you eat in a way that honors your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and demonstrates self-control? Or do you feed your desires like everyone else? Are you generous or stingy, compassionate or harsh, boastful? or humble, diligent, 
or lazy? Does your life look different? I always say this, we're good reformed theologians, so we don't like to talk about works a lot. We don't like to make our faith about works, but the reality is that our works reveal our faith and not in just some internal spiritual test, but to the world around you. That's where your works demonstrate your faith and display whether you're a believer or not and make people make a decision about you and your God. Okay. Your works make what Jesus has done in your heart visible to the people around you, not just yourself. Just as Cain had a choice in how to respond to the guilt that he felt as a result of seeing Abel's good works and acceptance, every single person must choose what to do with the recognition of the corrupting effects of sin in their hearts. And just like us, even after salvation, it's the same before. Are people going to dive deeper into sin and hatred? Or are they going to turn in repentance, forsake sin, submit to God? And love him and his people. Um, this is effectively what Jesus says about, reveals his disciples as set apart from the world. You set yourself apart by your love for one another and your righteous works. I want to take a moment to just talk about one weird question you guys may have here. This phrase, everyone who hates his brother, seems a bit paradoxical because it says, if you're a believer, you will love your brother. If you don't love your brother, then you're not a believer. So then if you're not a believer, that person's not your brother. Is that any only other person who when you start thinking about that, you start thinking yourself in circles because I did for a minute there. Um, and I just want to highlight real quick this theological idea of the church visible versus invisible. Have y'all heard those terms? The invisible church is not the same as the secret church, which is the thing that David Platt does. Uh, the church visible is the people, generally speaking, who get together on Sunday mornings at buildings that look vaguely like this one. Okay? That's the church visible. It's those who profess faith and gather together and look like, oh, those are Christians. It's professing Christians. The church invisible is all those people who are truly saved. Okay? So just think of it. Visible means you can see. There's visible signs. Invisible means there are there's there's not I mean there's visible signs, but you don't you can't physically see a checkbox there. Does that make sense? Okay? Um it's kind of a Venn diagram, but honestly, the church visible is largely bigger than the church invisible. I suppose it's possible to be part of the church invisible but not a part of the church visible. Maybe you are homebound. Maybe you're in a, uh, a country where you can't gather. You're in North Korea or something like that. Uh, but generally speaking, the church invisible gathers together as the church visible. But there are members of the church visible that will not be members of the church invisible. And I think that's what, what John is kind of calling out here. It's like, if you are part of this congregation, but you're not doing these things, that may not be your brother. You may call him your brother, and I'll use that term for this conversation, but you may want to check on that. Does, that. does that distinction make sense? Does that answer that question for you guys? 
Good. You may not have had that question, but like, Nick, that was obvious. Um, why'd you waste time on that? But it bothered me, and I thought it was interesting. Um, so our takeaways. Do you love your brothers and sisters in the church? When they do well, do you rejoice with them or do you resent them? When they stumble, do you tend towards condescension or compassion? Does your heart towards your brothers and sisters in Christ reflect the heart of Jesus, who is grieved when they sin and doesn't gloat and celebrate and gossip about them? Who, when they receive notoriety and receive applause, isn't resentful or bitter or vindictive towards them? Whose heart does your heart reflect with regard to your siblings in Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your body. Help us to apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you go, hold on. Before you go, I want to give one little shout out. How many of y'all know Bob? I'm going to do a classic Peter thing only at the end of the sermon. How many of y'all have met Bob? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. You're not going to get a chance because he's leaving town Wednesday. But I want to highlight Bob for one second. I helped Bob pack up his pod yesterday, um, and it was so satisfying you know, like when you're packing, sometimes you get like one thing that fits perfectly. That happened like five or six times. It was wonderful. I just want to say this, and, and this is Hillary, and these are his girls, even Lee. Um, I've never seen people enter a church as well as they have. Textbook. I mean, you could draw the blueprint from how Bob and Hillary have joined this church. Showed up. I got an email from Pete back about a year and some change ago about, hey, there's this guy coming to Pops named Dr. Bob Hartman. He's a philosophy professor at Tulane. And I'm kind of expecting somebody that looks like Ron, maybe. Uh, And then Bob shows up. I'm like, oh, you're Dr. Bob Hartman. Um, uh, Dove into Pops. Dove into small group. Helped the Lowe's move. That's like the second place I ever saw you was helping people move. Um, Hillary works here for crying out loud, or maybe worked. I think, yeah, she resigned. She had to leave. Um, but uh, just to go, not because of any other reason, just clarify. Um, just textbook models for how to get involved in a church. They didn't wait for people to grab them and pull them into things. They dove into things. I hope none of you ever have to find another church. I hope you all stay here and raise your kiddos and grandkiddos here. But if you have to, like, find me. I'll get you Bob's number. Ask him how he did it because he did a spectacular job. You have been a dear friend to me. You have left. How long were you all at Lakeview? In one year, you have indelibly changed the face of this church. I want you to know that, okay? You have done good work here. So y'all give it up for Bob and Hillary and for God for bringing him here. I'm sorry to embarrass you, but I'm not. Um, And now y'all can go. Thank y'all.